Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Again, I want to welcome you here. Uh, if you're just joining us today for the first time this year, we started a theme of goodness for the year. And as I mentioned before, it seems like every year we do a new theme, a new theme word. That word is often challenged. Maybe it's because our heightened awareness for the word has pointed out in our daily routines how that word is either challenged or how it's accentuated in our daily lives. But this year, the theme is on goodness, the fruit of the Spirit, which is goodness. And that's actually a very unique word in the Bible and in the culture of the time period of Paul. I heard a bell ring. An angel just got its wings. Yes, praise the Lord. Um, anyway, sorry about that. I'm easily distracted. I have ADHD. All right. Where was I? <laughs> oh, fruit of goodness. This year, the fruit of goodness, that word specific, specifically is called agathosune. And it is unique only to the Bible. Uh, it's mentioned four times in the New Testament, as I mentioned last week. Uh, and it's not mentioned in any other Greek literature. And this word for goodness that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 5 for the, in the fruit of the Spirit is hard to actually translate. Most uh, scholars, are they, they do their best and most educated guesses based on the word itself, but it seems to be something akin to like an innate moral goodness. It is a being good and a doing good kind of context. As we started off this year, we started in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're still there today, and you say, how many times can you read Genesis 1? Do you realize you could read that chapter over and over and over again, infinitum, and realize that there's so much there that we could never cover this side of heaven? Last week, we looked at the goodness of God in chapter one of Genesis. Today, I want to look at the goodness of his creation. So as we read again Genesis one, uh, before we read that again, uh, I wanted to give you this illustration. How many of you were alive in 1967? I wasn't either. <laughs> I don't mean to rub that, you know. Genesis chapter one, in 1967, something's wrong with my microphone. Genesis chapter 1 comes up in 1967 in a very unique way. The last week of that year, Christmas of 1967, three men, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders, left Earth for a breathtaking voyage around the moon and back. Within months, other U.S. astronauts would actually set foot on the moon during effort. The takeoff was flawless. 
And it's a remarkable footnote considering the problems in the space program leading up to those years and how many of our astronauts actually lost their lives on the launch pad. It's hard to realize how quickly back then we came to take the concept of space travel for granted. This is Apollo 8, coming to you from the moon, reported Frank Borman in the first of six telecasts beam from the rocket back to Earth. It was a stunning achievement for the space program at the time. Something occurred, however, on that flight that will always make that one specific flight memorable to many of us that were alive during that time. On Christmas Eve, as the Apollo rocket closed in on the moon and the television cameras gave us the sharpest details of the moon's surface ever seen up to that time, Borman, Lovell, and Anders took turns reading the first 10 verses from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't you think that's powerful? As much as we've learned about the world and the universe around us, we still have questions. Even in the advances of our day and age with technology, in the science, all across all of the sciences, there's still a wonder that comes with really plowing into and trying to understand all of creation. Scientists who even don't claim to have a faith in any kind of God are still amazed at how things work and are put together that still boggle the mind. This is the goodness of God's created order. Genesis 1, 1 through 25, reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And then he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came marking the first day. If you could read this in the ancient Hebrew by which it was written, you would catch the poetry going on here. This is, the reason it's indented the way it is, the whole of the chapter one, is to let you know that it is a different type of literature. When something like this is indented in your English Bibles, it shows you that it is of a poetic nature. It's not to say that the creation story is only poetry, but it is to give us a context of the fluidity by which God created everything. Verse 6, then God said, let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that's what happened. God made this space to separate the waters from the earth from the waters of the heavens, and God called the space sky and then evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so that dry ground may appear. And that's what happened. God called the dry ground land and the waters seas, and God said that it was good. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant with trees 
that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that's what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with the seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the third day. And then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let, the signs, uh, let them be signs to mark the seasons, the days, and the years. There were seasons before the fall. But they were bearable seasons, not fraught with danger. Let the lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that's what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set the lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fourth day. There's so much light pollution today, you can't really go out in your backyard and look up into the sky and see what those so many years ago prior to electricity saw in the night sky. You have to go to a really dark place where there's no light distortion from local cities to be able to see even a fraction of the stars in the sky. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed and morning came marking the fifth day. And I'm narrowing down, not the whole chapter, but where we're going to stop for this morning. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And guess what happened? It happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. Here's the key point this morning. The origin of creation is rooted in goodness. There is an inherent goodness in the created order of God's universe and of the earth and of all living creatures that God ever created. And I want to talk about that because we would say, how is this world actually good when all I see is so much evil? Because it seems like a contradiction in terms. We're going to unpack that today. We're going to look at two different things, though, in God's created order. There are those things that are inanimate objects and those things that are animate objects. So those things that are non-living and those things that are living. So let's look at the non-living matter first. Do you know the psalmist uh, David himself actually... Uh, as he was running from Saul, did you know that he had many an opportunity in the wilderness for about 10 years to look up into the night sky? How many of you actually look up to the night sky or even the day sky? I know you can't see much of the day sky in western Pennsylvania, but sometimes you get a glimpse. There's blue behind those clouds there, I promise you. But when we take the moments to look up 
And to see the vastness of all of creation just with the human eye, there should be a sense of awestruck wonder that overtakes us, even if not just for a split second. David, camping out in caves, in tents, in the wilderness, had many an opportunity over those years to look up. And I believe in those times when he did that, caused him to be inspired about the miraculous nature, not only of God, but of the creation that he created. And Psalm 19 goes like this. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. Now, let me stop there for a second. Heavens and heaven it's a multifaceted word. When we say heaven nowadays, we often think of the place where God is that people go when they die if they believe in Jesus Christ, okay? But oftentimes, the writers of the Bible, in any of the books of the Bible, will talk about the heavens. When they use those words, they are oftentimes talking about the created order of the universe, those things in the sky and beyond the sky, the stars, the moon, the sun. And so when David is writing this psalm, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about that heavenly space where there are lights in the night sky and light in the daylight that we call the sun. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun, it bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. And what does it do throughout the day? It runs the race across the sky. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and it follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat except Western Pennsylvania. I'm serious. David never knew about Western Pennsylvania. How could he have known? So how do the heavens declare the glory of God? I did some research this week. And actually this morning we were sitting in the coffee shop and my daughter Raylan, who went to children's ministry, asked me a lot of questions. She's still at that age where there's a ton of questions that come. She's like, how many, she's, she asked me about blood vessels in the body. Some of you get queasy and want to pass out when I say even that word. <laughs> but we started talking about that in the coffee shop. And I knew there were, yeah, I know, it's a weird conversation to have over coffee. How many blood vessels are in the body? Well, that was a question that came up. And so, I'm, you know, what do we do when we don't know the answer? We Google it. And you say, Google's uh, 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 not true. Well, not everything on Google is true, that would be correct, but this was a true statement. How many blood vessels are in the human body? This is not an inanimate object. I should wait until the next section, but I'm telling you anyway. 60,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. Huh? 
That's a good question. What does that equal? How many feet? <laughs> Just kidding. 60,000 miles. It takes approximately 25 to 26,000 miles to go around the circumference of the earth. So at least two times and then some more. If you were to stretch out your blood vessels that are compacted in the average adult-sized human body, it would circle the globe twice and then slightly more. Is that not miraculous to you? That, I mean, I think I have about 70,000 in this body. I'm just saying. But if you, I mean, 60,000 miles of highway for the blood to pump through my body. And then one pump that pumps it all through my body very quickly. That's pretty crazy. And I was thinking, well, what about the nervous system? All the nerves in the central nervous system that go into all the places in your body that you can touch and feel pain and all of those kinds of things. How many miles of those do you think's in there? 41 miles of your central nervous system. That's pretty amazing in and of itself too. But what about the universe that God created that is not alive in the way we think of living creatures? The initial explosion of the Big Bang had a different, if it had a difference in the strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60th, Okay, so let me say it again. If the initial explosion that started the universe, according to scientific theory, called the Big Bang, had differed in strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60th, that's 10 with 60 zeros behind it, the universe would have either quickly collapsed back in on itself or expanded way too rapidly for stars to have actually formed. In either case, life would be impossible. That is a minuscule amount. I mean, it is a fraction of what we're talking about here. A scientist with the last name Davis points out an accuracy of one part in 10 to the 60th can actually be compared to firing a bullet at a one-inch target on the other side of the observable universe, which is 20 billion light years away, and actually hitting the target with perfection. If God is perfect in who he is, and in all he is, then doesn't it stand to reason that the miraculous nature by which the universe itself seemingly came into existence would be near perfect, actually not near, would be perfect as well. Calculations also indicate that if, that if the strong nuclear force, the force that binds protons and neutrons together in the atom, do you know everything is made up of atoms? Have you ever seen the periodic chart? Right? That's what we're talking about. Each of those are made up of all different types of molecules that we call atoms. There's more to it than that. I'm not a chemistry major. Talk to somebody who is. But the reality is that the nuclear force, the force that binds protons and neutrons together in an atom, 
If they had been stronger or weaker by as little as 5%, life would also be impossible. The atom would not exist. All the fabric of everything that exists is made up of atoms, and the atom, if it didn't exist, nothing else would exist. Calculations by Brandon Carter, great name. I mean, not the Carter part, but the Brandon show that if gravity had been stronger or weaker by one part in 10 to the 40th, then life-sustaining stars like the sun could not exist. This would most likely have made also life impossible because there's a strong gravitational force that keeps things in counterbalance. The earth in its rotation around the sun has this pull on it that keeps things counterbalanced. What about the electromagnetic force? If it were slightly stronger or weaker, life would actually be impossible for a variety of different reasons. And lastly, do you know that our moon in relation to the earth is very unique? There are, I mean, hundreds upon hundreds of moons in our solar system going around all the different planets. But our moon is so unique. Do you know why? Well, I can say it's because of God and his miraculous nature to keep things balanced in our own world called the earth. But the moon counterbalances in its gravitational force as it rotates around the earth. There is this pull that causes tides to happen in the oceans and currents of the seas to occur. And it's at just the right distance away that this happens without catastrophic events. And it also keeps the earth in a wobble. The earth has an axis, but it's not straight up and down. The earth is not straight up and down, and the moon is just going around the equator. As a matter of fact, the pull of the moon with respect to the earth causes that wobble to go back and forth at just the right degrees so that we have the perfect type of seasons that don't destroy life, but actually bring life forth every new spring. This is pretty amazing stuff, but if it was off by a fraction, things would go into utter chaos. If the moon were to somehow get slung out into outer space, life as we know it would not be able to exist in this space we call Earth. Truly the heavens declare the glory and the goodness of God. Now, I, that's just a fraction of the stuff I saw. Most of it was way outside of my realm of understanding because I'm not a physicist nor am I a scientist. But some of the stuff is just amazing if you actually do the research on it. So much so that even secular scientists struggle with trying to figure out why things are in such great balance. Perfectly balanced. Okay, Romans 1 verse 20, Paul writes, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Do you see what, Romans, what Paul is saying in the book of Romans? That if you just take a moment and truly consider the heavens and the earth, it's miraculous. It's, it's actually mind-boggling. If it's mind-boggling to the smartest among us, how much more should it be for us who don't even know 
those details about how the heavens and the earth work or the human body works. You know what Paul also says in Romans chapter 1? That nobody has, again, nobody has an excuse not to know there is a God who exists that created everything. But do you know what he says in Romans 1? He says, but people exchanged a worship for God and started worshiping the creation. They started worshiping the creatures of earth. Those birds that fly, the things that crawl along the ground. They started worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars. The waters that flow through the rivers, the sea, the creatures of the sea, they began to worship those things instead of God. And as they did that, they devolved spiritually, if you will, into a depraved people who do wicked things because they invent ways of actually sinning against God. Here's how this works. You have a bad year. The crops don't grow. It's a drought season. Then the God of rain must be angry with you. So what should we do to gain favor with that God? The God of rain that we worship to bring us a good harvest for our crops. Rain dance? Oftentimes it was done through very wicked and evil ways. Human sacrifice, often. The spilling of innocent blood on an altar to this so-called God of the rain or the sky. When we neglect God and we start worshiping his creation, bad things really happen. You know, Paul later in Romans chapter 8 talks about how bad it actually gets, that the, the creation itself groans, waiting to be redeemed by God. See, the creation that God created actually groans. Where do you see the groaning of creation? Earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes. You say, but God created everything. He must have created those things as well. No, God created the perfectness of balance within his universe, within his created order. When sin and death entered the world through disobedience, it not only broke the relationship between God and mankind, it broke the relationship between God and the rest of the created order that he entrusted humans to care for, to tend, to watch over, to be good stewards of. Here's the thing, where did God dwell with Adam and Eve? Was God with them perfectly? Did he have to show up in angelic form, the angel of the Lord, or was it the full presence of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It was the full presence of God. But here's what happens. When God is not fully present, and he withdraws, what happens? Because if God is the author of all life, and he is the one who keeps perfect balance in everything, whenever he removes himself, even a fraction of an inch, what happens to that thing from which he removes himself? 
He leaves it over to its own devices. It becomes less controlled. It becomes more chaotic. Do you see the further God gets away from something or someone, the more depraved it gets? Do you know how many times God said that he hardened somebody's heart? What about Pharaoh? When it says God hardens Pharaoh's, hardened Pharaoh's heart, do you know how he did that? He didn't pull his hardness of heart gun back and go, zap. He withdrew. Because what had he been doing up to that point in Pharaoh's life? Showing him signs and wonders that he is the God over all the gods of Egypt. And it got to the point where he said, fine, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And I'm going to do even more miraculous works. And what does he do? In that moment, he says, I'm going to stop trying to convince Pharaoh. As a matter of fact, I'm withdrawing from him. I'm not going to convict him. I'm not going to try to work on his conscience. I'm pulling away so that he would become even more hardened to anything I'm trying to do. In the New Testament, we call this uh, as God turning somebody over to a reprobate mind. Have you ever heard of that terminology before? It's where God comes to the point where he's like, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I've given them more than enough chances, and they continue to reject me. So I'm going to turn them over, meaning I'm, I'll withdraw and give them exactly what they want. They don't want me, I'll withdraw from them, I'll, I'll pull away. I, I don't want that. I want for them something that they can't even imagine for their own selves, but they keep fighting against me, and because they're fighting against me so much, and because they're rejecting me so much, then I'm going to withdraw. We see this oftentimes in people who, who become so hardened over time. Do you know any really hard people? It's not that God can't reach them. It's that over time, they have become so calloused to God that they don't even feel. It's like grabbing your elbow, the calloused part that has less nerves, right? I'm sorry, that's the only thing I could think of right offhand. When you become so physically calloused to something, you don't feel the intensity of it. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's what happens emotionally and spiritually as well. Enough rejection of God, and he's like, okay, it's not what I want for you, but if that's what you want, then I'll give you what you want. It doesn't mean that God doesn't still try to reach those people who have become hardened over time. It just means that they have become so hardened that they don't hear him anymore. And, and I've said this before. We think God goes around with a megaphone screaming at people, the reality is God has a still, small voice. You know, so I have to admit, this is a confession. How many of you know I have a loud mouth? <laughs> My kids know that as well. Even when I'm not angry and I'm not frustrated, Dad, why are you yelling? I'm not. This is my natural voice. Um, I just have a naturally loud voice. But I admire and respect those parents that can parent quietly. Do you know what I'm talking about? They don't ever have to raise their voice. They talk calmly. And the deadening silence of a moment can actually be louder than the loudest voice. Do you know what I'm talking about? When a parent or a teacher, growing up, I was always getting in trouble at school for talking and goofing off. When the, when the teacher stopped talking, and I continued to talk and goof off, 
the silence coming from the front of the room made me perk up. This is how God often is. He doesn't run around yelling at us, trying to get our attentions. What does he need to do to get our attention? He created the heavens and the earth. I mean, there's so much that declares his glory. Does he need to go around shouting like Pastor Brandon does? No. Well, Pastor Brandon, why do you shout so much? Take a lesson from God. You're right. He often speaks in a still, small voice. We see this through the prophet Elijah. Do you remember when he conquers the prophets of Baal? And then Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, finds out that he has murdered or has slaughtered all of her prophets, 400 plus. And she's like, I'm going to kill him. Send the message. And he freaks out. And he runs. And he runs into the wilderness. God cares for him. And God says, I want you to go to these mountains over here and wait on me. And so he goes to the mountains. God refreshes him again, gives him drink and food. And while he is there, there is a fire that engulfs the mountain that he's on. But God wasn't in the fire. And while he's there, the earth shakes that rocks are falling down off the mountain. But God wasn't in the earthquake. And while he's there, a great whirlwind, a huge wind attacks the mountain. But God wasn't in the whirlwind that attacked the mountain. And then while he's there, there's a gentle whisper in the stillness of the moment. And God was in the gentle whisper on the mountaintop telling Elijah, I have not forgotten my people. I'm still at work. Get your butt back in action and go back from where you came from. That's my version of it. Romans 8, 19 through 23 for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Do you know when redemption fully and finally occurs is at the second coming of Christ. God is in the redeeming business, taking back that which the enemy has stolen, working to save those who were lost. That's why Jesus came into the world, to take the sin and the punishment that, should be, that we should be punished for upon himself through death on a cross. So that anyone who believes in him then would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news of the gospel message. And so now the rest of creation groans waiting for the children of God to be revealed. And when will they be revealed? Well, they are being revealed right now as each person gets saved. But the great revelation is at the second coming of Christ. And so the creation of God, the earth and the universe is in this groaning period waiting for God to reveal who his children are. Against its will, all creation, do you catch that? What is Paul saying? Against its will, all of creation was subjected to God's curse. Why? Because of what the humans did. Again, think of this. We're going to look at this next week. Adam and Eve were entrusted to govern the created order. 
But when they fell from God's grace by disobeying him and death entered the world, then how do you think that those broken, fallen creatures are going to care for and govern the earth? That's why the creation groans, because the fallen creatures who are supposed to be taking care of it are yet to be revealed. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. You can't not go into your garden and see blight on your potatoes or your tomatoes and see the disease that kills the trees in the forest. Death not only came to humans, but it came to all of creation, for everything withers and fades with time. Even erosion affects the inanimate objects of the earth over time. Paul goes on to write, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. We have a glimpse into the kingdom of God as kingdom citizens on the earth because as believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit has taken residence in us. And though the world around us groans, we have hope because we know it's temporary compared to eternity with God. We long too, he says, for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. How many of you have aches and pains? How many of you have bodies that are groaning? How many of you think back to 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and how much more nimble and less painful your body was to you then? All living creatures is the next one. Let the water swarm with fish. Let the earth be filled with the animals, livestock, wild animals, creatures that scurry along the ground. How does God's creation reflect his glory? Listen to this. One example of God's creative genius is a salmon. How many of you like salmon? 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 A fish that swims upstream. Okay? This fish is born inland in freshwater streams miles from the ocean. It migrates to live in the salty sea, and then it returns again to fresh water so it can spawn. This is the nature of its life. The salmon has this unique ability to maintain a constant healthy level of saltiness in its own body. Its internal cellular and organellular systems adjust automatically in response to environmental tracking systems that monitor external salt levels. So it can live in a salt water or fresh water. Not many creatures can do that. It has to have an internal mechanism that's able to balance that out. The field of bioengineering makes uh, the use of designs found in living creatures. One flying creature human engineers have tried to copy is the dragonfly. It's my wife's favorite, right? Still? Not really? Kinda? Yeah. I'm just making sure I know you well. Uh, these insects are expert flyers. They can maneuver straight up, straight down. They can hover in place. 
like a helicopter, and they can even, here's the fun part, they can mate in midair. I don't know what that means. Combined with its flight capabilities, the Dragonfly's high-tech visual system allows it to track and grab aerial targets like flies with deadly precision. A study of caged dragonflies found that they were able to successfully snatch their rapidly moving prey out of the air with 95% accuracy. What about the hummingbird? It's another animal that glorifies God. This little creature is distinctly different from all other birds. Hummingbirds are the only birds that can fly backward. Did you know that? They can zip around in just about every direction due to their wings' ability to rotate in a full circle and flap up to 80 times per second. One. There's a second. 80 times in one second that bird's wings can flap. Sorry, I just am amazed by it. <laughs> Hummingbirds have much larger and more complicated brains than insects do. One study determined that the hummingbirds had faster reaction times than those reported for visual feedback control in insects. The endurance and the speed of hummingbirds is also phenomenal. Listen to this. They can fly at 25 to 30 miles per hour, and they can dive at speeds of 60 miles per hour. The ruby-throated, Ruby, where are you? The ruby-throated, sorry, I lost my place. The ruby-throated hummingbird can travel up to 500 miles across the Gulf of Mexico to reach breeding grounds. Do you know how little these things are? How many of you have hummingbird feeders at your house? Have you seen how small these things are? They're minuscule. They can fly 500 miles. It's crazy. What about bioluminescence? This is a crazy feature. Bioluminescence is where uh, the cellular matter of an insect or different creature is able to illuminate, to light up, like a lightning bug, right? It has bioluminescence when, it butt, when its butt lights up. Right? I mean, I, I, I hate to say this, but as a kid, they were fun to smear because the bioluminescence would smear. I'm not that cruel anymore. But I was a little kid once. Bioluminescence is caused by a highly efficient system using protein called luciferin and an enzyme known as luciferase. Luciferase is a catalyst that produces cold light from luciferin in the presence of oxygen. Humans have so far unsuccessfully tried to copy the luciferin-luciferase system to achieve high-efficiency lighting uh, for practical use. The closest we've gotten is the LED light. It burns less hot and lasts a lot longer, but it still uses an immense amount of heat and electricity. Normal incandescent light bulbs, you know the old kind that we used to get that would last for a couple days? Um, they produce as much as 95% heat and only 5% light. An enormously inefficient and wasteful system of lighting, fluorescent lighting, is not much better. At best, it only produces 10 to 15% efficiency. But bioluminescence in creatures and animals that God has created with that ability is 96% efficient. 
It's pretty amazing. So what's funny is we as humans try to recreate that which God has created for the benefit of our own ability to function with more advancements in society. The dragonfly, they, they, there's, uh, there's, this, uh, there's this military vehicle that flies that they've tried to make work like a dragonfly without the wings, but where it can go up and down, back and forward, but it is not as efficient as a dragonfly. We mimic God's creation. That's what we do. That's what we try to do. And the irony is we don't give God the glory for it. Author Annette Griffin writes, Scripture continually affirms nature's revelatory value. The Bible tells us to consider the ant's work ethic. Did you know that? The Bible says, consider how the ants work. The sparrows trust that God will provide food for every day. The lily's beauty, the lily of the field that is up one day and dies the next. Or the goat's sure-footedness on the mountains and the cliffs and the crags. Not Craig Carnahan, sorry. The eagle's nesting habits. Who was I talking about? I was talking with somebody this week. But the nesting habits of an eagle, when they're building a nest, you know they will start with the most jagged of things. Like They will actually bring in jagged, sharp rocks and sticks with thorns and all of that to be the base of the nest. And then they begin to put really soft and uh, soft stuff in there so that when they lay their eggs, it is this beautiful, soft, cushiony space. But you know what the eagle does when the eaglet <laughs> gets bigger and it's time to fly the nest? If an eagle, baby eagle won't fly out of the nest, instead of kicking the bird out of the nest, they start to pull out the soft inner weavings of the nest so that all that's left are the thorns and the sharp, jagged pieces of stick to make it so uncomfortable that the eagle has nowhere left to go but to fly away. It's pretty crazy. Consider the eagle's nesting habits, the order, orderliness of the seasons, the strength of the mountains, the obedience of the wind and waves. Each scriptural object lesson about nature speaks of God's attributes and guides us into the path of his righteous ways. All, along with all of creation, the heavens reveal God's glory by its very nature. Without speech, without words, without sound, the heavens show God's complex ordered handiwork on a grand scale that confounds the wise and has left science wondering if there is a master programmer somewhere at work in the origin of life. And that, ver or that, that quote, master programmer at work in the origin of life, is from Newsweek, the magazine. But what about the problem of sin and death? Didn't that mar, mar the goodness of God's creation? Does that mean that everything is now not good? No, because what God declares good stays good inherently, even though it becomes marred by that which is bad. Now, does that mean then that all people will go to heaven or that all creatures uh, you know, will be saved in the end? The reality is we live temporarily in this broken and fallen world that God created good but is now susceptible to sin and death. And the only way of escape from the susceptibility of sin and death 
is through the saving grace of Jesus Christ who took the punishment of the world upon his shoulders and who we are waiting to return to truly take us home. As our worship team comes forward, I'm going to close with this. In an article entitled, Why Did God Call Creation Good?, Aaron Armstrong explains that when God said that what he made was good, he was affirming its original design and intent to reflect and display his good character, his power, and his nature. God is still interacting with this created world. When we say God is in control, that doesn't mean of all the finite things that happen to you. He is in control in the sense that he still holds everything in balance. The earth is still on its axis, still rotating and revolving around the sun in a way that continues to allow life to occur. Atoms and neutrons, all of those things that comprise the atom still hold together. Why? Because if God was completely separate, they would all fly apart. God's goodness is still inherent within the creation he created, even though it is affected by sin and death. In its original state, creation measured up to God's standards. It was the way he wanted it to be. It is exactly the sort of quality that he desired. That's why at the end of those days, he could say it is good because God's good is best. It could only reflect his character, his power, and nature because it could not not do that. And even after sin came into the world, with its corrupting power and influence, the fundamental goodness of creation remained. Sin might distort the goodness of creation, but it can't make what God has said untrue. Creation is still good in the hands of God, and it still serves its purpose of proclaiming his glory to the world. And God's people should affirm the goodness of God's creation and seek to preserve it even as it groans for its final restoration when Jesus returns to make all things new. So why do I say all this? I say this to help us understand that our mandate as humans has not changed. Though we are fallen and broken human beings, God has provided us a way out of the fallenness and brokenness while we live in the fallenness and brokenness for the time being. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We realize in John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, that it is through Christ that all things came into existence. And the only way back to the Father in heaven who pulled away when sin entered the world is through Christ. So what do we do in the meantime? We can shake a fist at heaven and declare there is no God, and if there is one, then he isn't worth worshiping anyway because of all the bad stuff that goes on, or we could bow at the feet of the Savior who came to bring us new life and to rescue us from the plight of sin and death. The choice is ours. God is not forceful. He is loving and he is good. And the creation he's entrusted to us is good. And we should treat it with the goodness and the governance that God has entrusted with us from the beginning of time. I'm not an environmentalist by, the stretch of the, by any stretch of the imagination. 
but we have still been entrusted with the capability and the abilities and the mandate to care for what God has created, what God called good. Not to throw caution to the wind and abuse what he's given us, but to use it to bring him glory because it truly declares his glory anyway. We are entrusted to be good stewards of all of that which God has entrusted to us. The only way we could be good stewards is if we are one with God through Christ Jesus. Otherwise, it's all in vain. Our altars are always open. God is always in the business of creating, remaking things new. And in the meantime, while things are pretty messed up, there is still an innate goodness if you're able to see it in the creation of God. Heavenly Father, in this place, as the heavens declare your glory, I know that your desire is that we declare your glory. We are the capstone of your created order. I know that the world has said that we're not. It's all about, it's all about the environment. No, it's about the one who created the environment. But as we truly find ourselves in you, as we truly are surrendered to you, we are able to truly care for that which you've entrusted us in a way that you would, not in the way our selfish natures would. Help us to not be people who worship the creation, but rather worship you, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Remind us where our place is within that and help us to be good stewards of all that you've entrusted us. And where we fall short, God, continue to extend your grace. Forgive us for our sins. Continue to extend your mercy to us for we desperately need it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.